Hi, Hannah. Thank you so much for taking the time out to talk today. Thank you for having me, Alicia. Can you tell me about where you grew up and what you ate? Yeah, um, I had sort of a weird upbringing. I lived, I was born in New York City. And when I was seven, my mom moved to Massachusetts. So I actually came back and forth every other weekend between New York and Mass um, until I was 17. So I grew up, yeah, Um, I grew up in a small town called Newburyport. It used to be Massachusetts' smallest actual city. Um, It's right on the New Hampshire border. And uh, it's, what did I eat? Um, My mother was a very, I would say, not inventive cook. Mm -hmm. So we had this cookbook called 365 Ways to Cook Chicken. That was something she was really dedicated to. Um, You know, bottled salad dressing and a lot of steamed vegetables because that was very in vogue in the 80s. Um, My father who lived in New York was a little bit more adventurous. um, And he was more into like cooking different kinds of meat and vegetables. But I would say that we were a pretty prototypical 80s family. Nothing very interesting going on. (laughs) Right. Well, you know, growing up between Massachusetts and New York is interesting in terms of like the rivalry there. Do Do you have more of an affinity for one over the other? Yeah, actually, that's I, I have some pretty good stories, but my <laughs> father is a was a, my father passed away, but he was a diehard Yankees fan, and my mother is from Massachusetts and has always been a Red Sox fan. And I used to wear like a Yankees starter jacket to school in Massachusetts and was teased. I mean, just beyond all get out. Right, of course. <laughs> I remember that moment when starter jackets were so popular, and my mom wouldn't let me get one. Um, They were very cool. Yeah. (laughs) Um, But you write about such a wide range of topics, you know, not just food and wine and travel, which kind of go together, but also parenting, real estate. How did you come to writing and and build this career as a generalist? I definitely started um, in food and wine, which was where I was most comfortable. I had come out of working as a sommelier for some time. So that was kind of a natural uh, seg for me. Um, And more recently, as I've expanded my repertoire, I've kind of followed things that are interesting to me. Um, my husband is chief of staff for what we call out here a high net worth individual. And so he has a lot of experience in like homes. And so, you know, we did our own, we you know, kind of GC'd our own renovation and I got familiar with the real estate market, which um, granted me kind of some intellectual access, I would say. Um, but I, I think I now view it as like, if something is interesting to me, and I feel like I have a base knowledge, that's, you know, like, if I'm, if I have enough understanding of the topic to, to be able to report it out, then it's something that I'll, I'll write. Right, right, right. And, you know, you are best known as a food writer and were a sommelier and graduated from the International Culinary Center. And, like, you have these huge credentials in this kind of field. Um, So how have your experiences in restaurants and training for those careers influenced your work when most writers about food and wine don't have that experience or, or like, uh, background expertise? Yeah, it's uh, well, first of all, it's granted me a lot of access because I think that even at the very beginning when I was green in writing, I could always say, look, you know, I'm clearly an expert in this field because I've worked the floor. I, you know, and I can tell you about X, Y, and Z, especially with wine writing where there are 
very few women in particular who write about wine, um, just compared to the overall field. Um, I would say that, you know, I have more empathy for what goes on in a restaurant and more understanding. And I would never, I think I would never find myself in the position of being a dining critic for that purpose right. because I have too much kind of relationship to what's going on in the both front and back of the house. Right. And what drew you to getting into that work? <laughs> that was, it was born of necessity. Um, <laughs> I think I, I got a master of fine arts in fiction writing when I was like 24 and I thought, oh, I'm just going to like go to New York and write the great American novel and I'll be cool. Um, so I got a job waiting tables. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, but what got you deep into it, into, into making it more of your career? You know, it was sort of a series of accidental situations. I was working in restaurants. I got, I worked for Bobby Flay was like the first major restaurant I worked at um, in the city. And then was working for Laurent Tourandel at BLT Prime uh, on 22nd Street in, in the city. And I, I felt like when I would go up to a table, I could talk to them about food, which was something with which I was pretty familiar because everybody eats. But wine felt um, kind of intellectually inaccessible to me. And so I started meeting with sommelier after work and coming in and like doing inventory, which just sort of set me up for this career as a sommelier. I, when I was working as a sommelier, I, there were kind of a couple of things about it that felt compelling to me. One, the, the mood of a restaurant, like the frenetic energy and the fact that you're kind of always doing something. It wasn't an office job. I was in my twenties. Um, and then there was, there's sort of like a vigor to it. I mean, yeah. you know, there's, there's a lot to know about wine and it does cross into kind of like you know, the literary study that I had been accustomed to and that I, you know, um, based my academic career on. And, and that part of it felt like it wasn't just, you know, serving people things. There was like an element of, you know, knowledge and understanding that went with it. And that to me was intriguing. How, well, how does your MFA in fiction, do you think, influence your, your work now, if it does still? Um, I don't know that it, I, I really, if I wish, I wish I had if I could go back in time, I think I would have done that differently. I didn't, I think I knew that I wanted to write, but I didn't know what kind of writer I was. And so right. I, I picked fiction, but I think I was always a nonfiction writer, but I mean, I'm not, it's hard to, I'm not sure if that set me up and that I exercised the muscle of writing more regularly. And I saw it as something that you kind of had to produce within a set period of time, which is useful if you're a career writer. Um, but beyond that, I'm not sure that like I got too much strategy out of it. It took mm -hmm. me a while to kind of get to this place. Right, right. Um, well, you know, you did write a book review last year that was made a big splash, I think, in in some circles. You know, uh, for Eater, you reviewed David Chang's memoir, Eat a Peach, which was also your memoir of of working for him. And it was one of the, the best I and many had read on the reality of working for one of you know, a big chef whose behavior is lauded and excused. And it was really just such an eye-opening kind of look into that world. And, you know, I just the other day opened the Goldbelly website and the, fir the first main page is David Chang's face. And I was like, mm. are we still doing this really? Mm. And, you know, I wanted to know why you wanted to 
open up in that piece in the way you did and how the reception was to it. Because I, I talk a lot with friends about the cost of exposing tr our trauma and, and whether we gain anything from it really. And so, so, you know, how, how, why did you decide to do that piece in the way you did it? And, and how have you felt in the aftermath? So when I decided to write the piece at first, um, I was, I felt like I had to write it. It wasn't, it was sort of like I didn't have a choice. And mm -hmm. it, the whole process began when Peter Meehan st uh, stepped down from the LA Times last summer. It was like right around the 4th of July. Um, at that moment, I kind of had this feeling in the pit of my stomach, like, you know, all of these people are suffering accountability, if you want to call it that, uh, right. in, in some small way, but Chang never really did. And, you know, why doesn't anyone talk about it? So I actually just sat down and I wrote a draft of what was at that point a completely personal essay. It had nothing to do with the book. Um, and after kind of speaking with a bunch of different editors who were interested in it and then ultimately landing um, with Matt and Aaron over at Eater, we decided that the best way to frame it was through the lens of his book because his book had just dropped at the point that I was like still shopping the piece. Um, the... In terms of, so when you're a public writer and you write about yourself, which I do sometimes, um, there's always, you know, an element of vulnerability and there's an element of blowback that can accompany that. I think, you know, that's sort of just par for the course with my job. And, and I, you know, I talk to other uh, relatively high profile writers about this is like, you know, people feel like they know you and they feel like they have access to you and they feel like they have, they're entitled to tell you how they feel about your work and your life because your life is suddenly public. And that's always challenging no matter what the piece is. I actually was surprised by the reaction that I got from this piece because I was expecting blowback whenever mm -hmm. something goes viral, you do. But, uh, most of what I got privately was actually um, deep empathy. And, and a lot of people who had worked for Dave um, during different periods and at different restaurants reached out to kind of suss through their own trauma, which was mm -hmm. an unexpected consequence. I think I didn't, I didn't necessarily know what people who were in it were going to feel. And they felt largely the same way that I did. Right. Um, and, and that was, uh, that was like a very surprise surprisingly rewarding part of all this. Um, I've been disappointed that uh, it kind of disappeared in the national narrative and people just kind of let it go away. Um, right. And they let his behavior kind of just continue to be what it is. Right. It's really shocking to me. And I, I don't know. I, I'm always been curious how you feel in the last few months when I've seen his name just kind of pop up in a really neutral manner. Um you know, and what has been your response to that? Uh, that's hard. And, yeah. you know, of course I got that PR email that was like advertising a project that he was working on. And I was like, I, I actually can't believe that someone wouldn't even put my name into Google before putting, sending right. this PR thing out <laughs> to me. Like what? Um, you know, it's not that I think that he's all one thing. Like it's not right. like I think he's a terrible person or even bad at what he does. I think he created something that was really cool. I was certainly driven to like work there and eat there. Even after I left, I wanted to eat at the restaurant mm -hmm. or the restaurants. 
Um, but I do think that, you know, I had sort of this moment at the end of my piece where I called for him to, to say something and step down or like, you know, pass the reins of his business onto somebody else. And that has really been met with silence. And, Mm -hmm. you know, it's, people like to say that we've come so far in this industry and I don't know how far we've come at the end of the day. You know, powerful men um, are still the ones who run things in the restaurant industry. Right. No, and I, I've been thinking a lot about this. I think that writers are punished for speaking out about chef behavior and for writing about it, even though we think that that's our job, but but we are really expected to maintain the status quo when it comes to these chefs. We are expected to be nice, be accepting that it is hard to work in a kitchen, hard to run a kitchen. And so even though these people, usually men, are getting rich off the backs of other people's labor that perhaps they've been toxic to, we are supposed to not necessarily criticize that. And that came up for me this year because the person who was chosen to be the series editor, the the editor for Best American Food Writing 2020 or 2021 was Gabrielle Hamilton, who, you know, I saw my job when I was writing for The Village Voice um, uh, to as a food writer, to be someone who kind of held powerful people to account for their Mm -hmm. decisions. But I wrote a piece about how, you know, when she was thinking of going into business with Ken Friedman Mm. to, uh, yeah, to, you know, restore the spotted pig and somehow, you know, related it to a natural disaster and that sort of thing. And it's like, it was just really horrifying to watch in the midst of like this big movement for accountability um, to see a, a female chef thinking that she could kind of uh, fix a, a rapist <laughs> and a restaurant with a rape room, you know, yeah. um, that anyone in the industry had heard, you know, the whispers about this. Like I was told, you know, people knew not to work there if you were a woman. Um, yeah. and, and so like, it's, it was just really bizarre. And so I wrote about that in tw- when it happened in 2018. And then when she was the named the editor this year, I was like, oh, I guess I'm, <laughs> I'm certainly not <laughs> going to be in it. And that, and that has consequences for us financially, of course. And that's why I was like, how is it okay to put a chef in charge of deciding the best food writing when this is, of course, someone who's going to protect other chefs as well, you know? Um, and when your uh, essay on Eda Peach wasn't included in the anthology, you were very vocal on social media about your feelings about it. And I, I was really impressed by that because I feel like most of us are like, you know, we're going to be Charlie Brown going home or whatever, sad being like, okay, whatever, I guess I'm just not good enough. But when we know that's not the case, we know that these things are not judged on a real meritocratic level. Um, And so I wanted to ask you why it was important to speak out about that. And, you know, can we really, I I don't think we can really have hope (laughs) that awards or anthologies are going to reward work that's critical of chefs uh, because they are you know, bound to protect each other. And I mean, there was something included about like just being the girlfriend of a Michelin starred chef. I saw it. (laughs) And it's like, wow, this is just really uh, collected work this year when we had, we're talking so much about restaurants and the role of restaurants and 
well, we're going to have an anthology that just pretends that none of that actually happened. Um, but yeah, so for you, why was it important to speak out? And, you know, how did you feel about this person being the the editor? I, I mean, I'm pissed about the whole thing, but... Um, <laughs> And actually that essay that you're talking about that was in Grub Street and with, you know, I very much like Alan, um, but the, the winner of that award tweeted out how honored she was to be working with one of her idols, Gabrielle Hamilton. And I like wanted to scream into the void. Um, (laughs) Look, anyone who has read my essay, who is in, who's tangential to the food world knows that that essay belonged in the anthology, right. if for no other reason than it memorialized a certain period of time that we were living in, and that is what is supposed to be the point of an anthology that comes out annually. Yeah, <laughs> and uh, I'm not afraid to say that it was an excellent piece of writing. It's probably the best piece of writing I have ever executed, with great gratitude and debt to my editors who reined me in. But, um, you know, I, I actually just, and this is my bad. I really just thought it was a sure thing. Like I was like, I'm a hundred percent going to be in the anthology. Like, why wouldn't I? And even Pete Wells was like, you know, you're definitely going to be in the anthology or whatever. So I, when I didn't receive word from them, I was like, this is shocking. And then I was like, I guess it's not shocking. Like it's not shocking for Gabrielle Hamilton to be exactly who I thought she was going to be. And you know, in addition to the Ken Friedman thing, there was the 10,000 word essay that she had in the New York Times Magazine last year, which people blindly praised when it had a lot of really questionable things in it. Like, oh, hey, uh, I'm not going to take a GoFundMe for my staff because it bruises my ego. And then a recipe a few pages later for using $60 crab and an appetizer. My point really is that it's not like a I don't have like a personal grievance. I just think that how, like who made the decision to put her, I, I mean, it's, it's mystifying. The whole thing is mystifying. I think it's widely understood in the food community that changes need to be made. And yet here we are after all of this, repeating the same narrative over and over again, let's take the people who are abusive and put them in positions where they get to choose what is good and what is not good. Let's, you know, ignore the fact that this was, um, the you know, the biggest year in terms of racial injustice that we've had to actually face head on as Americans in my lifetime and put a white female writer, um, you know, restaurateur of all things uh, in the position of editing the collection. It just, you know, the food world continues to be tone deaf, of course. I mean, we can talk about James Beard a different time, oh, yeah. but um this is just sort of another example. And, you know, I don't know if there's a correction on that. Like I tried to call it out so that more people would um, amplify the understanding of it. And privately, a lot of high profile people reached out to me publicly, not so much. Yeah. And that's disappointing because we really do. And I said this, I think I wrote about the James Beard Awards and how like, Basically, I think writers, if they if they bring back the media awards, writers, especially freelance writers, should boycott putting their work in because something has to give in terms of the way these things work, uh, in terms of how much energy we put out and then are expected to also spend money to be have our work considered. Um, right for these awards. Uh, Meanwhile, we get paid garbage and are taxed to the hilt for that work. Um, And 
I just, the expectations really need to change. And I, I think it, the reason it was so disappointing that Gabrielle Hamilton was chosen this year is that this was a year that we were hoping to see changes. And I think yeah. that her decision, the decision to put her as editor this year showed we're not actually going to change anything. We want to consolidate power uh, at where it is and keep it where it is. percent. Um, yeah. And it, I think it, it is important for people to talk publicly about that kind of thing. But the thing is, it, it looks like sour grapes to some people. It looks like you're being rude to your colleagues whose work was chosen. But it's it's not that. Like at some point, we ha- it has to give that we reject the status quo and this this concentration of power with chefs and it, it's it's just high time <laughs> right and you know I think also the public may not know for instance mm-hmm. that like when it comes to these compilations and awards I mean best American you don't have to pay but you have to be the one to right. actively send her your material and be like please consider me it's not like it's just a bunch of people sitting in a room going through every piece of food writing from the year. No. And with IACP and James Beard, you have to send them money and then you have to send them your links and you pay for every single submission. So it's like, you know, obviously there's an access issue based on the financial part of it. But in addition to that, you have to have the wherewithal to even know when to do this stuff and, you know, who to send it to. So it's, the system is completely messed up. um, Even apart from, the person making the choices right. about what gets included. Right. No, it's, it's, it's just really upsetting. And I think I'm, I'm, I'm glad that you were vocal about this because it, it's such a conversation. It's a conversation that's wildly overdue um, to like, just really point out that what is called best American food writing is simply one person's kind of idea of what that means. Right. Um, and not, a real expression of what that year meant in food writing. Um, I mean, if it was, we would have seen a lot more independent outlets, I think, included there. Um, yeah. It was really a year of independent media. Um, but yeah, no. So, <laughs> and yeah, it's, it's really sad that that more people aren't willing to kind of reject uh, these things that, that we know are harmful. Um, but that's that's the world we live. That's capitalism, I guess, right? Um. Yeah, I mean, I think you know, my feeling is also like, as far as I mean, and you mentioned sort of the collateral damage that that writers can suffer by um, vocalizing this kind of stuff. I, right. I mean, I continue to be unafraid of anything except cockroaches. So, um, don't put me in a room with roaches. But you know, <laughs> I, I, if I want to have, if I want to write a piece about David Chang, I'm going to write about a piece about David Chang. If I want to post about Gabrielle Hamilton, like I'll suffer the consequences. I don't believe for myself because of where I'm positioned that these people are going to come for me. I recognize Mm -hmm. that they are very much capable of coming for people who are less established. And in some ways um, I see it as an obligation because I have a platform and because, you know, I, I have enough of a reputation of being kind of an iconoclast and like just saying whatever the F I want. Mm-hmm. that I, I'm, I'm not sure it's harmful to me. And so I feel like it's it's my obligation to use that lack of harm uh, to everyone's advantage. Right, right. And I would hope it changes things, but I think people are a bit too comfortable with the way things work, um, even if it is to de- their detriment. Um, right. Yeah. 
Um, well, to shift a bit, I wanted to ask about living in the Hamptons because I know <laughs> you're living in East Hampton. I grew up in Patchogue on the South Shore, so I I know the Hamptons well because I used to work at I used to work at Hildreth's um, department uh, yes. store in Southampton. Mm-hmm. I designed the website for like a couple of years when I was in college. Um, and, you know, I wanted to know, like, how is it out there? Where, where do you eat? Like, how has it influenced your work? Like, it really is, I think, more interesting a place than people give it credit for because of that kind of merging of, you know, the townies and the working class and like the wildly rich. And I, I think it is more interesting than people give it credit for, though. I do think it's weird how much like the summer, like places from the city kind of open summer residencies out there now. I think that's uh, so yeah. weird. Um, <laughs> but for you, how is it? How is the experience? Well, it's changed in the last year because the pandemic really like, you know, we have this, there's this sort of beautiful off season that we enjoy as members of a resort community. Uh, (laughs) And it's like until late March, early April, and there's nobody here from September on. And it's like, you know, our own private Idaho or whatever. Um, But uh, this past two years, everyone's been out here. So we haven't really gotten a respite in that sense. Um, right. You know, it, it has its pluses and minuses. I grew up um, where I grew up in Massachusetts was a seasonal beach community also, although certainly not to this degree and, and wealth was not like part of the equation. Um, so I'm used to like the pop in the summer and I always gravitate toward the beach. That's something that's very important to me. Um, but actually the towny element of it for me is maybe the most interesting thing. I, I really did not know moving out to the Hamptons six years ago that um, it's very conservative out here. There's a lot of um, conservative politics, which are a, a tough pill for me to swallow as a <laughs> former Brooklyn resident. Um, you know, in terms of restaurants, more and more we're seeing things that are opening year round, which is exciting. I love um, the Nick and Tony's group, uh, Rowdy Hall is actually one of my favorite just sort of go-to places. And then it's ex- it's actually exciting for all of us, even those of us who live here year-round, when the stuff starts opening for the season because it's mm-hmm. like something new is happening. And, like, you know, I get <laughs> yeah. to go to a different place to eat. Um, so that's starting now. Um, I like to go to Montauk a lot because I'm close by, and I, I lived there for a few years. But um, I would say that the experience is – it's a very – it's, it's hard to explain to people who don't spend a lot of time here, the, the blend between the high and low and like the, the absolute, like the, the wealth is so unimaginable, but then there are just ordinary people who live here too. And there's a huge undocumented community who lives here, um, which is something I really value about the community. Yeah, no, it's interesting. My, I used to work out there and then also my dad used to drive, Martha Stewart around a little bit. <laughs> um, so I have like this very weird um, understanding of the Hamptons. Because yeah, when I worked at Hildreth's, it was all people who lived out there. And like, you know, you have a different sense of what it's like from that versus, you know, when I've been home in the pandemic and I went out to like Carissa's, which is so beautiful, but it's yeah. like such a different vibe. <laughs> yeah. And they had like the fourth Ave um, Amaro. And I was like, oh my God, like, it's just a taste of like, you know, 
city stuff, um, which is good. And I can't wait to go back, honestly. So, <laughs> I mean, I can't wait to get to the beach. I'm just, everyone's predicting kind of like a banner year out here, which is mm-hmm. not necessarily what you want when you have to like drive on one lane right. of traffic every single yes. day of your life. Yes. So. Yeah. That, that moment when Sunrise Highway becomes one lane is oh. a killer. Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, but for you, is cooking a political act? Um, yes. I mean, I think I, I make choices in terms of like what I purchase and, um, you know, who I do business with, uh, both cooking and, and dining. Um, and that is sort of informed by my politics of what Mm -hmm. I choose to eat, what I choose to feed my kids. Um, you know, I, uh, I've had a farm share out here for the entire time that I've been living out here because I really feel like, um, I need to be part of like the local farm system. And I feel like it's important for people to buy into their community in that way. Um, there are places that I absolutely stay away from. I'm not saying blue duck, but maybe blue duck. <laughs> <laughs> Very yeah. big Trump supporters. Oh yeah. I didn't um, know that. Yeah. So, <laughs> <laughs> uh, although it's tough to navigate that out here because like, if you were really to go by that, you would never buy fish. So, yeah. um, but yeah, I think, you know, there's political, everything is political, right? Like people like to say, oh, don't get politics involved. But politics absolutely governs everything you do, especially um, in a small community. Right, right. Well, thank you so much for taking the time today. Thank you for having me. This is really exciting. <laughs>